So my aunt and uncle had a horde of Rupert annuals. Yeah, they did. I only took half of them. Mm. I felt I, I felt like I couldn't take them all. Well, you could. No, I, I felt really awkward. They were yours for the taking, darling. Yeah. You were you were right there. I, I took the ones that I really wanted, hmm. um, especially, um, and you can photograph this for the dear listeners. Um, the nineteen eighty Rupert Annual has the story in it, Rupert and the Flavors, which I mention in the Rupert the Bear episode where the rain tastes like fish and chips. Yes, that is the you story. You did immediately turn to that page and go, Joe, what does that say? The rain tastes like... The rain tastes like fish and chips! Yeah, there you go. And that's my favourite story. But I used to have Rupert cassette tapes with stories on and there was four stories and the 1980 Rupert annual has all four stories in it. They were lazy, so they didn't even mix the stories up. They just nope. straight... They straight took them from a Rupert annual. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, I'm glad you were happy. Yeah. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this story. Yes. That we will do today. Yes. Begins mm. in the Victorian era. Your favourite era. I'm not even. I'm not even giving that a comment. Why? You love the. It doesn't Victorian need era. a comment. I've already given my energy to that. Okay. Because on the twenty first of August, eighteen seventy nine, Claude Graham White was born in the little village of Bursledon in Hampshire. Just lovely. Yeah, I bet it is. I'm pleased for him. Despite being a little village with a population that even today barely tops six thousand. Is it still there? Oh, yeah. You know how sometimes you get these little villages and over the years they develop and either become towns and get renamed or they merge with another village and become like a hybrid? Well, they just become districts of uh, other towns, don't they? Yeah, they do. Hmm. It's nice that it still exists. It it does still exist. Uh, And because of its position on the River Hamble between Southampton and Portsmouth... Mm. It was the perfect place for shipbuilding. Lovely. And over the centuries, hundreds of Royal Navy ships have been built there, including the HMS Elephant, which Lord Nelson used as his flagship. Shut up. Yeah? The HMS Elephant. Yeah, well. Wow. Wow. What what more majestic seafaring animal <laughs> I was gonna would say, you... Uh... Name I mean, a ship after. I suppose technically elephants can swim. They can swim really well. Would you cut... Had had they just... <laughs> I was going to say something stupid. You were going to say had they just invented elephants. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh! <coughs> I believe the elephant was invented by Sir Henry Elephant. Sir Henry Elephant. Back in 1589. Oh, so. right, okay. No. The HMS Elephant, which is famous as... It was used by Lord Nelson before he was Lord Nelson, he was just Captain Nelson at the time, as his flagship during the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801, was... which was a comprehensive victory. Was he Horatio Nelson? Yes, he was. And it was a comprehensive... You don't get many Horatios nowadays, do you? It's a very, sh- it's a very big show. It's like, of, of all the wacky names you get in schools, Horatio's not one of them, is some, it? Some names fall terminally out of favour. Out of favour. Horatio seems Gary's to be one of them. Gary's on his way out. 
Now, the reason the Battle of Copenhagen was a comprehensive victory is because they basically snuck up on the opposition while they were asleep. Yeah, I have heard about the Battle of Copenhagen. It was a a very traditional English kind of, well, there's nothing in the rule book that says we can't. Get Jerry while his pants are down. Yeah. Mm. In 1933, the remains of a truly iconic ship, the Grace Dew, were discovered in the river just outside of Berseldon. Right. The Grace Dew had been the flagship of King Henry V. It was oh, one yeah. of the largest ships of its time and had been designed to be unbeatable in battle. Indeed, exciting. it never lost a battle. Though, to be fair, it never actually participated in one. I was going to say, I bet it never did. It's It's like, I love history because things get lost in the mists of time and you can kind of refine them, but I, I love the... This definitely happened. It definitely happened because some guy believed it hard enough that he managed to change history and almost make it happen, even though it didn't. Oh, no, we we know what happened to the Grace Dew. It was sunk by act of God when it was struck by lightning and subsequently caught fire. That's very unlucky. Well, yeah, but, I mean, if if that's your flagship, if you are, you know, King Henry V and you're like, this is the centrepiece of my navy, look at my strength, and then it gets hit by lightning, sets on fire and sinks into the mud. Everyone around you is going to be, hmm, are you sure this is the king we want to stick with? It's not really his fault he got struck by lightning. No, but when you when you are claiming that you've been ordained by God to be king and then something you've like that happens, smoking. yeah, it's, it's going to make people a bit, eh, want to follow that guy? That guy that God's obviously very angry with anyway by the time claude graham white was born the shipbuilding industry had almost completely disappeared from berselden strangely it was temporarily replaced by a strawberry growing industry right before heavy industry returned in 1897 Mm -hmm. in the form of the berselden brickworks a steam-powered victorian factory that still stands to this day Nice. Though it is now a museum. So they do still make steam-powered bricks. Yeah. But uh, only as an educational tool. Nice. Nowadays, the village is probably best known as the setting for the BBC drama series Howard's Way, which ran from 1985 to 1990. Though I think it should actually be known for two other reasons. For the subject of this episode, obviously... Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have picked him. And for a ghost who haunts the bridge on Cole Park Lane. Right. The ghost is thought to be of a Victorian woman. Oh, his bloody is. Called Polly Crook. Is that, do you know what? Right. This is why I like BBC's ghosts, right? Yes. Because you get a ghost, like, staggered through history. Because do you know what? We seem to get a ridiculous amount of Victorian women ghosts. Almost like, you know, the cavemen ghosts never exist. The Victorians were great at um, Bullshit. Mor- being morbid. Bullshit. But Polly Crook, she was apparently... Polly Crook, my arse. A woman who had two great loves in her life. Distilled apple cider yeah. and smoking her clay pipe. Very nice. The story goes that her insistence on combining the two loves caused her to accidentally ignite herself while crossing the bridge burning to death almost instantaneously in a case of spontaneous human combustion. 
hygiene was lacking back in the day. And they say the first indicator you get that Polly is on her rounds crossing the bridge yeah. is the smell, faint smell of baking apples and pork crackling. That could just be around our house on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I'm not being funny. <laughs> anyway, right. let's get back to Claude Graham White, right. the subject of today's tale. But you've got a bit of background of where he's from. It's from a place where drunk Victorian ghosts hang around ancient ships. Smelling like apple pie yeah. and crackling. Where you can either grow strawberries or make bricks. Those are yeah, your two I f- options. I feel like that didn't get the reaction that you really, really wanted. But you know very well that I do not believe in ghosts. Yes. To the point... We covered it in Bawley Rectory. Yeah, it was Bally hard Rectory. to get any any sentence out any without you rise. going bullshit bullshit <laughs> joe no listen listen they might very well but until i am proved to that they do exist i don't believe it don't worry we're talking about very material things today good good claude graham white was educated at the prestigious bedford grammar school 120 miles away from his home mm. because when you're from the upper classes you don't want to have to actually deal with your children. To be honest, on some days, it's preferable whether you're upper class or not. Hmm. Just saying. Claude, he got over his homesickness and he showed a natural affinity for anything mechanical. He became an apprentice engineer, looking to work in the field of the newfangled petrol engine. It's going to replace horses, don't you know? Yeah, I get a feeling he's going to invent a car. It is now generally accepted that the first petrol car to drive the roads of Britain was a homemade machine constructed by a plumber called Frederick William Bremner. He hadn't quite finished it when he first took it for a spin in the December of 1894. So he was so excited that he built this car, Bremer, that he just like, I'm going. Have you attached the brakes? I'm going. Mm -hmm. I'll just... Drive it up a hill, it'll roll to a stop eventually. Evie did a whole project on the internal combustion engine at school. It was really interesting to listen to, actually. Mm. Um, but she did the first commercial combustion engine. Right. Rather than homemade. The following year, in 1895, a 16-year-old Claude Graham White learned to drive and was one of only 14 to 15 people in the entire country at the time who owned a petrol car. So he was an early adopter. He was. Both in terms of his age. Yeah. Oh, and there goes a small petrol engine. And in terms of the amount of people who actually had a car at the time. Mm. There's some ambient sounds for you. Yeah. You see, cars were new. And they were exciting. Yes. And they held Claude's attention for the rest of his teenage years and most of his 20s. Right. To the point where he owned a a car dealership. Nice. In fact, he was less than a month away from turning 30 when something happened that would finally tear his attention away from motor cars. Can I guess? Am I allowed three guesses? You may have three guesses. Thank you. Um, I'm going to guess... I'm going to just guess land speed records. Okay. No. I'm going to guess the bluebird. 
No. No. For context, that was the uh, water speed record. The water speed record. Set on Windermere. Congleston. Was it Congleston? No, it was Windermere. No, it wasn't. It was Congleston. It was the longest. Is Windermere? No, it's Congleston. It's Windermere. It's Congleston. The wreck's in Windermere. I promise you it's Congleston. I'll check and I'll put in a, a thing. We did fact check this after the episode. And it turns out that the Bluebird set its water speed records first at Ullswater on the 23rd of July 1955 at over 200 miles per hour and then set four separate further British records on Coniston water. I meant Coniston. Which is the same lake where it eventually did a bit of an explode. So I was right. So in this instance, Emma is claiming victory... I just said the wrong thing, but I was definitely right. And we're going to give her the benefit of the doubt. Woohoo! So well done, Em. Move <laughs> <laughs> the cup away from your <laughs> It's my thinking. I'm, I'm resting the warm, the warm cup on my chin to do my no, thinking. No, you're resting it in front of your mouth. Mm-hmm. I'm only thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, but I'm think mumbling, so it doesn't matter. What do you mean think mumbling? It's like mumble rap. Mm, mumble oh, God. Um, right, come on. Third guess. Planes. Shall we see? Because the thing was, he still loved cars. Yeah. But the number of cars in the country had reached the thousands. They were so passe. Oh, how boring. Yeah, everyone. Did you know, some of the middle class oiks had started to get hold of them. Oh, Jesus. Once your bowler hats have got them, you might as well not bother. Yeah, the scene's dead. The events that changed the course of Claude Graham White's life took place... On July 25th, 1909. And it began in Calais at 4.41 in the morning. Because that was when Louis Blériot began his attempt to be the first man to cross the English Channel by aeroplane. Very good. He will fly like Icarus. He will. He landed at Dover, specifically Dover Castle, 36 minutes later which was a little bit awkward as he planned to land on the beach and that was where his wife was waiting for him, along with most of the press. Oh, bollocks. In one of the few instances where I can say something positive about them, a Daily Mail reporter took it upon himself to drive up to the castle, collect Louis and reunite him with his wife so that he could celebrate his achievement with the Frenchest of French kisses on the sands. Do you know what? I still don't like the Daily Mail. They, 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 oh God, I don't even know where to start. This is a rant or I'm just going to have to take my shoes off because I'm ready to rant. I'm ready to rant now. The Daily Mail is awful. It's a rag. I wouldn't wipe my arse with it. Claude read about the feat, possibly in the Daily Mail, mm. and immediately decided that aviation, that was the thing he wanted to dedicate the rest of his life to. That was the noble pursuit. I wonder if he had a hand in... I'm just thinking ahead, because I know quite a lot about aviation, because I'm a geek. Yes. I'm wondering whether he had a hand in all cock and brown. No. He didn't? No, no, no. He's going to be ploughing his own furrow, don't you worry. Because brown went to my primary school. Yes. And aren't they damn pleased with that? Yeah, there's, um, there's a plaque... And um, a stained glass window with all cock and brown in, in the 
in hay houses in Dowd C of E Primary in St. They Anne's. They were early pioneers of aviation. They were. were a little bit beyond the early pioneers. This was where, you know, the biplane was quite a, a set design. You had the box kite design and the biplane design. They were quite established at this Fair point. Enough. As Claude knew the name of precisely one pilot, <laughs> he did the logical thing and tracked Louis down to the Reims aviation meeting in France. Mm-hmm. which just so happened to be the day after he turned 30. Very good. So he spent his 30th birthday travelling across to France so that he might be able to bump into a pilot. He enrolled in Blériot's aviation school and received the first French licence, number 30 overall, to be issued to a Brit on mm. January the 4th, 1910. Do we have some of the other names? I do not. Oh, that's very disappointing. When he returned to England after six months of intensive training, he became the sixth person in Britain to gain a pilot's licence from the Royal Aero Club. Again, I did not look up who the first five were. There's probably going to be another episode where we'll talk about those five, you know, if we do this long enough. Now, Mm. while having a car had been a flashy hobby for Claude, Mm -hmm. he got real serious about his planes really fast. Very good. Almost as soon as he got his licence, he bought 200 acres of land just north of London and set about turning it into an aerodrome. See, isn't this just like the upper upper crust hobbies thing to do? Oh, I'll just buy land. You know, some of the poor sods we've discussed on this podcast that don't have two apennies to rub together. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just like every day's a drudge. And it's just like, oh, we just happened to buy this airfield. Oh, we just bought acres of land. Oh, we just had loads of cars as a hobby. This was supposed to be lighthearted and you're bringing politics into it. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Again, ghosts, watch it. You told me. Sorry. You told me you wanted a lighthearted episode. Yes. With transport. I did. And then I give you one mm. and you try and drag it back to your Stalinist principles. <laughs> No, I just... So he bought his 200 acres of land. Fucking knob. Okay. (laughs) To make an aerodrome. He founded the Graham White Aviation Company with a plan to host his own version of Blériot's Flying School. Okay. So he's almost franchised it out. He's like, I'll I'll do the same thing just in England. Okay. Claude was evangelical about aeroplanes and he saw no reason that it should be limited to only men enjoying the sense of freedom and adventure, mm-hmm. but only flying through the air. In... With the greatest is of ease. No, that's the daring your men on the flying trapeze. That's not right, is it? <laughs> well, I, I think with the greatest of ease is what you hope. Okay. <laughs> um, accordingly, he was active not only in training the first British female pilot, Edith Maud Cook, yes. but he also helped in the foundation of the Women's Aerial League. Claude hosted members at his aerodrome in Hendon and would regularly run women-only races, ensuring that the prize money for the winners was equal to that of the men's races. Bloody hell. Members of the Women's Aero League included the Pankhursts. Of course. So, you know, he was he was down with the women's. He was down with the women's and the women's rights and the... Do you know what? Equal pay, equal opportunities. I don't know about that. It's probably... We want equal votes... Okay, I don't know about that, but would you like to fly a plane? No, that's more my speed. Right, I can okay. help. Well, with even the flying of okay, the plane. even in the in the age that we are living in now, in twenty twenty three, Wimbledon still do not have equal prizes for the men and women. They can't even get it fucking right. 
for goodness sake. Again, light-hearted episode, transport. Yes. Your your thing, you're bringing Wimbledon into it. I am. Who's I'm talking about tennis? <laughs> Me. And another thing. And another thing. Why is it not equal across the board? For God's sake, if they could do it then, they can do it now, is my point. I've, okay. Right. Equal. Okay. okay. Speaking of prize money, as soon as Claude had received his Aero Club certificate, he had also started entering competitions. The first prize he set his sights on was a £10,000 offer to the first person who could complete a flight between London and Manchester within a 24-hour period. London and Manchester? Although it didn't need to be completed in one go, competitors were not allowed more than two landings. At a distance of over 200 miles, it was around 10 times further than a flight across the Channel. The prize was being offered by... The Daily Mail! He would announce the competition in 1906, before the first powered flight had even taken place in the UK. So again, in this one no. very niche instance, no. No. props no, to the Daily it. Mail no. for championing no. technology. No props, no snaps, not even an arsehole. You know, we are, we are even-handed. And in this one small niche area, the Daily Mail, for a little while, seemed to have a positive impact on the development of aeroplanes in Britain. Claude made two attempts in April 1910, during which he inadvertently became the first pilot to fly his plane at night. However, he was eventually beaten by a Frenchman called Louis, but not Blériot. It was a different Frenchman called Louis, Louis <laughs> Poulhan, who completed the feat on April 27th. Okay. During the first leg of this journey, Louis covered 117 miles, which was the longest flight in the UK at the time. He completed the trip in just over 12 hours total and claimed his £10,000, which the Daily Mail, xenophobic as ever, very grudgingly gave to him. The French. Yeah. <laughs> An Englishman handing the French money. <laughs> yeah. They, they, no. Back in the day, they wouldn't have liked that. Back, Well, now they wouldn't like that, but back in the day, especially not. Claude was not put off by the failure, though. After all, the British love an underdog story, and despite not gaining the prize money... Claude did achieve celebrity status. He was the premier pilot in Britain. It also didn't take him long to begin winning actual prize money. In July, Claude won £1,000 at the Midlands Aviation Meeting for the very boringly titled Aggregate Duration in Flight. That sounds like it might come with a PowerPoint. The winning aggregate duration in flight that he achieved was 1 hour 23 minutes and 20 seconds if you're interested. No, I'm not. I don't know what that means at all, but it sounds like it might be numbers yes. and a chart. Well, and he won it. Quite frankly, I, I'm not interesting, interested in it at all. It doesn't sound interesting. Did he do a loop-the-loop? No. Then I'm not interested. It gets more interesting. I'm sure it does. Based on what, what I'm hearing from you, you want a bit more pizzazz. I want... I want a bit of razzle-dazzle. I'll razzle your dazzle <laughs> okay, in a minute. thank you. Amazingly... There was a limit to the amount of money you could win in competitions taking place in Wolverhampton. And Claude quickly realised that if he wanted to make aviation a viable career, mm. then he would need to head across the Atlantic and begin competing at American aviation competitions. Now, going back to my friends Allcock and Brown. Yes. 
did they go to America? Well, I want to know what they were the first to do. They were the first to do powered flights in the UK. No, they were they were the first to to travel a certain distance, go a certain way. Okay. Well, but I, I just wondered whether they were first to go transatlantic. No, no. Okay. We'll look it up afterwards. Yeah, we will. Do you know what, Em? Why don't you do an episode where you teach me all about Alcock and Brown? I don't think it's that interesting a story. Why don't you do a short episode? <laughs> Five minutes. Yes, why don't you do an episode history? Yeah, of Alcock and Brown, okay? Okay. Now, Claude took his farm and three biplane on a ship to New York, arriving just in time for the international air meet in Long Island. Claude entered and won the Gordon Bennett Aviation Cup race and was awarded a gold medal and a substantial amount of prize money. Mm. We don't know how much that prize money was, but at a similar event in Boston a little later, he won $22,500 in a single afternoon. Nice. What's the, what was the exchange rate? I don't know, but I know what the average yearly wage in America was at the time. Go on. 750 quid. Jesus Christ. And in an afternoon, he's won 22500 I'm surprised he wasn't robbed. Mm. Well, he was in a plane. They couldn't reach him. Ha-ha! And away. Off he, off now, he pisses with his 22 grand. <laughs> while completing his very lucrative flying competitions, Claude, a trained engineer had been noticing some limitations with his plane. Uh-huh. Thinking through the issues in between events, Claude sketched some designs for a plane of his own, one which corrected the issues that he had identified. I mean, it was still based heavily on the Farman 3. Yeah. But it was like a a souped-up version, a better one. A jazzy one. Yeah. While in America, Claude showed his design to representatives of the Burgess Company who were so impressed by the design that they purchased a licence from Claude to create the plane he had named the Grey and White Baby. He literally called it the Grey and White Baby. How cute. Though they rebranded it as the Model E. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they didn't think anyone pl- would buy a plane called Baby. They would. Mm, possibly. Claude continued his American tour, winning loads more prizes. However, it was an incident in Washington, D.C. that would leave Claude with his most enduring memory of the trip. Okay. On October 14th, 1910, Claude was making some money completing a demonstration flight over the city. Identifying an opportunity for extra publicity, Claude decided to land his plane on West Executive Avenue, which is right alongside the White House itself. Mm -hmm. The scheme worked and Claude spent the last few days of his American trip taking rich people for pleasure flights at a charge of £100 per minute. Again. Oh God. Average wage, $750. I mean, even to get up to altitude, you're looking at... A couple of minutes. I was going to say a good couple of minutes. It reportedly, just over a couple of days, made him an extra $5,000. Jesus Christ. Fortunately... Claude did not have a passenger with him when he crashed a loaned box kite plane and broke his left leg a few days later. He took this as a sign that it was time to head home to England, having made a reported quarter of a million dollars. Well, I mean, it's... it's yeah. It's not a bad way to spend it's, a summer. It's That's not a bad... That's over one summer. Yeah, it's not a bad six-week big holiday, is it, yeah. really? Big six-week holes, what did you do? Made a quarter of a mil... And he was happy with the money. But he was starting to feel a bit uneasy with his White House stunt. He was thinking how easy it would have been for him to have attacked the most important building in the USA from the air with relative impunity. Mm -hmm. And Claude became convinced 
that the next major war would be fought with planes and that he needed to impress upon the British army that they needed to begin investing in research and development as a matter of urgency. Mm. Mm. Very good. In 1911 and 1912, Claude wrote two books, The Aeroplane, Past, Present and Future, Mm -hmm. and The Aeroplane in War, which he wrote alongside a journalist from the Daily Mail, called Harry Harper. Oh, Harry Harper off. Both books put forward his concerns that planes could be rapidly developed to drop bombs and to quickly move troops around countries. He wasn't wrong, was he? Yes, and he concluded that whichever nation was the first to manage this feat would have a massive advantage in any future conflicts. Again, he wasn't wrong, was he? Mm. Naturally, Mm. having diagnosed the problem, Mm -hmm. Claude felt he was the man to fix it, and he was the only man indeed who should be trusted to develop military aircraft on behalf of Britain. Mm -hmm. And he began designing with gusto. After all, he'd already designed the baby... And that was being mass-produced in America. Mm-hmm. So he's, he knows he can do it. Mm-hmm. He gave the newly formed Parliamentary Aerial Defence Committee demonstrations of the potential threat via live-action role-plays where he would drop <laughs> flower bombs onto targets in the shape of battleships to show how devastating a well-organised air attack could be. So he made a bunch of military men sit in a little you know, row of chairs mm-hmm. next to a sketched-out battleship while he flew his plane over and chucked flour at it and see i'm not mad you're mad how else could he illustrate his point joe this is what i want to know a drawing no no he's he's a he's a graphic thinker like me you need you need the practical application for a problem okay yes okay okay yeah i think he was just more of a salesman. He had sold cars in the past. I yeah, think he's, I don't he's think, a salesman. I don't, no, I don't think he is a salesman. I don't think he's a salesman at all. I think he's a he's just a very practical thinker. Mm. Mm. He not quite reached the point where he was ready to begin manufacturing prototypes of his new planes mm. when he decided to take a trip with his wife Dorothy in the summer of 1912 that almost ended in disaster. Right. While house guests of Sir Daniel Gooch... There is nothing funny about that name, <laughs> Sir Daniel Gooch and Lady Gooch, mind. Would you like to go and see Lady Gooch in Essex? Oh, what did they call her for a nickname? Taint. <laughs> well, they lived at Highlands House in Essex. Oh, God. Highland so, House? Highlands, not Hyman House. <laughs> Mr and Mrs Taint living at Hyman House. Yes. Um, Claude. <laughs> right, okay, I've had a minute. Go on. Claude and his wife took a trip to Southend on Sea, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and from there decided to fly to Clacton on Sea in his hydroplane. Yeah, because of course he was going to travel by hydroplane. We saw one of those the other day, mm. didn't we? You don't see many, no, but it looked like many. it was off to the Lake District. Mm. It was very exciting. And while the flight to Clacton on Sea in the hydroplane went well, mm. the flight back didn't go according to plan. As Claude later explained, <clears throat> we were about three miles out from the coast when the engine started misfiring and three inlet valves broke. This caused a fearful explosion and it backfired into the carburettor, which flooded and the fuel caught fire. Jesus Christ. 
Now, the petrol tank would have ignited and blown them up in a spectacular fireworks display if Claude had not leaned over his wife to turn the petrol off and put out the fire. He burnt his hand badly in the process. Mm. Then all he had to do to save them from certain death was to land the plane without any engines. Also, it was getting dark. It was a hydroplane, though. Also, it was raining heavily. It was a hydroplane, though. Yeah, yeah. Somehow, Claude skimmed the plane to a stop on the sea. But by then it was pitch black and the couple were drifting around five miles from the coast of Essex in the rain. I don't know whether that's preferable to landing in Essex, if I'm going to be honest. Wow. Sorry, Shots Essex. have been fired. Shots have been fired. In I'm a sorry. southerly direction. In a southeasterly direction. I'm joking. I'm Amazingly, they were noticed almost immediately by a passing fishing boat who offered them a tow to land. Oh. As long as Claude gave them £6 in cash before they did so. Well, to be fair, he had made quarter of a million over mm. six weeks. I think six quid he could spare, couldn't he? I feel the same way. Which is why I imagine his wife was less than pleased when Claude refused to pay and defiantly watched the fishing boat chug off into the what distance. fucking tight arse! His wife, Lady... No, not Lady Taint, no. No, no she, Dorothy. No, poor, poor, poor old Dorothy. Poor old Dotty is like now sat in the rain, shivering five miles off of the coast of Essex. Yeah, where her husband's going, ha, I'm not paying those kinds of rates. Fuck off. <laughs> Consider, I'm not a mark. Five miles off the coast of Penge, probably. After a few hours of what you would imagine was a very uncomfortable silence, yeah. the couple managed to attract the attention of a passing yacht who mm. took them to dry land. The hydroplane itself was recovered intact the next day. God's sake. But that could have been it. All of his plans to build these military aircraft could have been ended by his own re- reticence to pay £6. Six pounds pounds out of... For someone saving your life. £250,000 that he'd made. Bear in mind that he would have put that in a high-interest account. I think he was putting it all into R&D on these planes. That was all ready start-up capital for his new aviation empire. I don't empire. give a shit, he could have afforded no, six quid. No, he could have quid. afforded six quid. I don't think anyone's arguing he couldn't have afforded six quid. He then, after he'd refused to give them six quid, do you know what he had the brass neck to do? Mm. As they were chugging off, he shouted after them, well, you could at least lend us an anchor so we don't drift further out. And they turned around and went, are you fucking mental? No. No, no, you've been resigned. Do you know what I would have done if I was that, if I was on that? You'd have taken Dorothy, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, I would. You'd have taken Dorothy and gone, would you like a lift home, Yeah, madam? because he, quite frankly, needs his bumps feeling mm. and he can be left here to rot. Mm. We should point out that phrenology is a debunked science. It is a debunked science. And feeling science. people's bumps <clears throat> will not tell you whether they have any kind of illness. No. Or predisposition towards psychopathy. I don't think in this day and age do we really need to give that line. Oh, people believe in homeopathy. I mean, it's a small <laughs> step, isn't it? Well, it's a small descent to madness. I mean, yeah. what's going on? By 1913, Claude was ready to begin building prototypes, mm-hmm. confident that he would be able to secure a government contract that would secure the grey and white aviation company's long-term future. Is he wifeless by this point? No, but he does go through three wives over the course of his life. I'm not fucking surprised. Dorothy doesn't stay much longer. No. No. The first prototype was the Type 6. A biplane with attached machine gun that could be made relatively cheaply in the hopes of enticing the Royal Flying Corps 
into making a bulk purchase. Is this the one where the machine gun was mounted to the back? Uh, I think this was a two-seater, so yes, there would have been a, a gunner at the back and a, back, pallet a rear gunner. A rear gunner, if you will. Unfortunately, in trying to keep costs down, a woefully tiny engine had been fitted. And when I say woefully tiny, I mean probably too tiny. There's well, saving money and then there's... Scrimping. Well, you'd be the judge. Did they get it off Wish? The the, the first test flight. Mm. Um, a lot of ceremony, a lot of fanfare. You can imagine... Claude stood there, ready to watch. Do you know what it'd be like? It'd be like it'd be like the red box, red bull thing off a pier. I've now got visions. Oh yeah, the 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 flying competitions off the piers. Not too far away because (laughs) he watched his test pilot taxiing down the runway, picking up speed. Yeah. Realising it wasn't quite picking up enough speed, no. the plane barely managed to clear the small hedge at the end of the runway oh, before it crashed unceremoniously into the neighbouring field. Well, I'm, It technically flew. I'm assuming... Or at least jumped. The kind of gun you're looking at... I don't know about a lot about artillery, but I'm assuming the kind of gun that you're looking at for the time would be a small field artillery gun. And yeah. it would weigh a fucking ton. So if if nothing else, you've got to have an engine to counteract the weight at the back. Otherwise, you're never going to get it off the ground. It wasn't. It wasn't a problem with weight distribution. It was a problem with the fact that the engine just wasn't big Woeful. enough. Woeful. He tried to save money, but it was like, yeah. Even you if still it... have to adjust, though. You have to adjust for weight. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. As it crashed into the field, it was perfectly balanced. It just, it's not about it being balanced. It's a big enough engine. It's about the engine not being big enough to lift the extra weight. That's yes. what I mean. Yeah. So you don't have enough... No, it didn't matter about the extra weight. It wasn't big enough to lift a plane. Fair enough. <laughs> Before you put pilot, co-pilot and gun on it, it mm. still probably wasn't going to take off. Unsurprisingly, no orders were placed, even when Claude said he could fit a bigger engine to it. So he went back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. The Type 7 was rushed out only a month later okay. and was an improvement in that it could actually fly for an extended period of time. Good. It was also actually bought by the Royal Flying Corps. Well, mm-hmm. two. I was going to say, the, two planes I think were. there was two, weren't there? And they only ever actually used one of those. Mm. But it was a step in the right direction. It was 100% more sales than it got with his Mark VI. Do they still have the one that never flew? I don't know. Possibly. Somewhere in somewhere in a museum. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But Claude, he'd sold a plane and he saw that as a sign that he should just press on. He was very close to perfecting his design now. Mm. But rather than focus exclusively on refining his design for a two-seater military aircraft, mm-hmm. Claude got a little distracted. He was told about the Michelin Cup, a competition for passenger aircraft. Mm-hmm. And he decided that he would build a plane to win it as a means of increasing publicity for the company. Okay. His passenger plane was called the Type X, or Sharabank, and was designed to carry five passengers. Mm. However, on October the 2nd, 1913, in a bid for even more publicity, the plane flew for 20 minutes with nine passengers crammed inside. Jesus Christ. This was a world record at the time. 
I assume so, but it's like that. How many people can you fit in a mini? Mm. Only this is only this is like in the air, significantly high off the ground and a bit sketchy as fuck. Yeah, yeah. There were people literally sort of hanging out of the seats and things. <laughs> but do you know what? Not only did it set that record, it also won the bloody Michelin Cup by Amazing. covering over two hundred miles on November the ninth. And to round a trio of achievements for this truly groundbreaking plane. Mm-hmm. It was used for the first successful parachute descent from an aircraft in Great Britain when Mr. Newell leapt from the skids on May 9th, 1914. Amazing. Because apparently up until that point, it had been considered ungentlemanly to jump from a plane. All parachuting had to be done from a balloon. <laughs> because how quickly the rich do put in place rules of etiquette around things. <laughs> It's not British if we don't have rules of etiquette yeah. about random shit that does not matter. It's only gentlemanly to jump with a giant sheet from a hot air balloon. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? From a plane, you commoner. I think Mr. Newell was a commoner. Uh, of course he would be. Yeah. They won't get. They won't send a toff with a bit of bedding attached to him out of a plane. I'm just thinking because I've seen pictures of Mr. Newell. He's wearing a flat cap, so oh, amazing! Yeah, oh you'd, ne- oh, you'd never catch a toff in a flat cap. No, no, no. That's that's nouveau riche. Mm. By this time, Claude was back to designing military aircraft. You know, he got his mojo back. He'd had all these successes with the Sharabank. Very good. And he designed the Type Eleven, which was exhibited at the Olympia Aero Show in March 1914. Mm. But despite all the good publicity, like I say. He was a salesman. He couldn't mm-hmm. do the smooth patter. The company had generated no sales for that plane. Everyone mm-hmm. went, oh, that's really interesting. That's really good. So how many could I put you down for? Oh, <laughs> you misunderstand me. Mm. I said it was interesting. I didn't say I wanted one. Yeah. Claude decided that what he needed was not to fundamentally rethink his designs, but to drum up even more publicity. Okay. So again, he distracted himself by designing the Type 13 which was a pure racing plane that he planned to enter in the Daily Mail's new competition, the Circuit of Britain Air Race. Right, okay. This one-off plane could cruise at 85 mile per hour for over five and a half hours, and everyone agreed it had a great chance of winning. Mm -hmm. Then the outbreak of World War I was announced, and the race was cancelled. Of course. I just have to move my leg, it's gone dead. There we go. So the irony, the war that he'd been warning everyone about for ages was the thing that stopped him from yep. being able to show off with this truly remarkable plane that he's designed. I don't think he was necessarily warning people about the war. It's just like, no, if we have an outbreak of war, this is going to be a real threat. And no fucker listened to him. While it was a massive blow to many people in, in Europe, I imagine, mm. but to Claude personally, uh, because he couldn't garner any more publicity, yeah, it did have a silver lining in that his next military prototype, the 15, Mm. finally generated a significant order of 135 planes. It was also chosen as the first model used by the Royal Flying Corps to be mounted with a machine gun designed for aiming at targets on the ground, so strafing people from Mm. the sky. He he came up with that idea. He did? What, What if we could shoot civilians from the air? Digga, 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 digga. That's him. I don't... I don't know if it's necessarily civilians. 
it's necessarily civilians, but if you can take out, you know, like a... Troops. troops. You can take out ground troops. Yeah. Yeah. Although this order was a success for the Graham White Aviation Company, so much money had been spent on the development of 15 separate plane designs within a two-year span. Yes. That Claude had needed to invest most of his fortune in the company just to keep it afloat. So you asked yes. where that quarter of a million went. It went in him not being able to just stick to one design. And playing al- paying alimony to his ex-wives. No, there's only one ex-wife at this point. Still, Claude was on good terms with the commanders of the Royal Flying Corps, to the point that when they heard reports of a Zeppelin flying near London on mm. the evening of September the 5th, 1914, mm. and needed someone competent in night flying to possibly patrol the skies for it, they called Claude. He spent an hour searching the skies over the capital in vain. But it turned out that there was a bit of a false alarm and there wasn't a Zeppelin after all. Fair enough. Nevertheless, it is still remembered as the first ever air patrol in defence of a city. He did that. He did that. He did that just before he started strafing civilians. (laughs) Well, he wouldn't be doing it. He'd be the rear gunner. No, no, no. This was a front-mounted machine gun. Also, it can't be mounted at the back because you're not going to be able to shoot down. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it would have been Claude firing his gun at the people on Clapham Common to get out his frustration at not being <laughs> yeah, able to I'm take just, out I'm a just trying to. I'm just trying to picture because it wasn't it, it wasn't in World War One where they'd or at this point in World War One where they'd refined the shooting in time with the rotation mm. so I'm just trying to picture where the gun you're probably, you're probably right, it's probably in the cockpit well we can find pictures of all of these planes mm. don't worry Interesting. the episode sparked new ideas for Claude, who wrote a new book in 1917 called Air Power, Naval, Military Commercial? question mark in Naval? This... yep okay. in this book he outlined the theory of the knockout blow which predicted that the next war, after the one they were currently fighting, mm. would be won through the bombing of cities. Swear to God, this man is tapping into some kind of crystal ball. And Claude was determined that the British would be the ones with the planes that could deliver such a blow. Yep. That is why he again became distracted from building fighter planes and instead designed a long-range bomber beast of a machine with three engines and a 90-foot wingspan that could stay in the air for over nine hours at a time. He called it Ganymede. Yes. After the largest of Jupiter's moons. Yeah, I've seen pictures of Ganymede. It's a big boy. It's slightly terrifying, if I'm going to be honest. While it was undoubtedly quite an achievement, the length of time spent in development meant that the prototype was delivered to the Air Ministry after the war had ended Mm -hmm. in 1919. Mm -hmm. Understandably, they didn't see the point in ordering long-distance bombers when they'd just won the war to end all wars. Mm. And again, Claude was left with nothing to show for his massive investment into the development. Mm -hmm. To rub salt into the wound, Claude converted it into a 12-person passenger plane in September 1919 to try and recoup some money, but the Ganymede was destroyed in a fire less than a year later. Oh, that's disappointing. Mm. His other attempt at building a specific passenger plane, this one a five-seater in 1919, also ended in disaster when the prototype GWE-7 
was damaged beyond repair during a crash. All these numbers are getting a little bit cabin pressure. Mm. This is the thing, he never stuck with anything long enough. No, he never he never saw it through. It wasn't through. He wasn't the kind of person who just refined a design a little bit. It's like no. that hasn't worked. Let's start from scratch again. And he did that so many times. Mm. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't a tweaker. He's mm. a back to the drawing board kind of yeah. guy. Mm. He's very dramatic. Very. Even worse for Claude though. He was finding it difficult to get the government to pay him for any of the planes that they had purchased. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> Protracted legal battles commenced and, understandably, Claude started to become a little bit disillusioned with aeroplanes. Yeah. In fact, he didn't design or build an aeroplane after 1919. Oh. Instead, he converted his factory into a cycle car manufacturer. A what? A cycle car. The fuck is a cycle car? It's almost like the British idea of a tuk-tuk. These tiny vehicles with single-cylinder engines of 348cc will produce a mighty 3.3 brake horsepower. Jesus Christ. Yes. You're scared of that speed, aren't you? I am actually terrified of that, yeah. But it seemed that this was more about Claude not wanting to fire his workforce than about him discovering a new passion. Yeah. And by 1925, well, he was still in dispute with the government over payments. Mm. He decided that he was done with Britain entirely and closed his factory. He sold his aerodrome to the newly formed RAF in 1925 Mm -hmm. and moved to Nice in the south of France. With this starting capital from the sale, Claude Graham White invested in real estate and property development, slowly rebuilding the fortune he had lost in pursuit of creating the best military aircraft Mm. in the world. Practically none of the planes built by the company lasted beyond the 1920s. But Claude, he found a certain level of peace and happiness in Nice and he remained there Mm. until he died on August 19th, 1959, two days shy of his 80th birthday. So he saw out the Second World War as well. Yeah. Probably sitting there going, looking at those those spitfires and going... I could have done better than that. Fucking <laughs> that shit. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember who designed the Spitfire. Well, it's someone's daughter helped with the designs. Yeah. For the guns, didn't she? Yeah, she did. She figured yeah. it out. Yeah. We have a was she thirteen year old girl figured that equation it, problem out? Yeah, she she figured out the the rotation algorithm, if mm. you will. To, 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 to the fire, so yeah, that the, the rate fire, of fire would so be perfect you with the spin. blow off the, ro- the rotors, mm. yeah. Still, the test pilot who first took it up and like, don't worry, we've worked it out. What do you mean, we? Well, my daughter worked it out. Yeah. Yes, she's 13 and still in secondary school, but she's really good. Trust me, she's yes. clever. She's, she's whip smart. Mm-hmm. Okay, just when you're ready, press the fire button. <laughs> oh my God, it works. Uh, he died with his third wife by his side. So he he only had two divorces. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not really surprised. You imagine his third wife met him when he was a property magnate in Nice. I was going to say, kind of when he'd retired, yeah. if you will, from his There was a lot of passive doings. income coming into him at that point. And it's yeah. just like, I need someone to help me spend my money. In Nice. In Nice. Hello. Yes. Here I am. Wife number three. 
Wife number three just scooching on in here. Mm. None of the threat that wife one certainly and wife two definitely Probably. endured. Yeah. Yeah. Today, despite his litigation against them, an original World War One grey and white aircraft factory hangar at the Royal Air Force Museum London houses the museum's World War One collection. Mm. It is named the Grey and White Factory in honour of one of the first British pilots and a true visionary when it came to understanding how flight would change how wars were fought. Mm. Even if, you could argue, he never quite got the hang of actually designing military planes. I, th- I think that's one opinion. Well, is it? Is it my opinion or is it your opinion? It's not my opinion. Whose opinion is it? Mm, that's quite clearly your opinion. Mm. I, th- I think he just couldn't stick at it long enough. I think if he'd designed one mm. and worked on tweaking it, he would have potentially done better mm. and probably got further than just scrapping it and starting it again. Mm. Just instead of it being prototype but for prototype were... five, it would have been better if it was Mark one, Mark two, Mark three. Where there were just tweaking. British military aircraft in World War One towards the end of World War One. Mm. Um I don't think we saw the dogfights, did we, of World War Two in World there War. There were I. some dogfights in World War One. That's the Red Baron, isn't it? He was in a biplane. I can't remember. Mm. There were dogfights. I know fights I know he was in a bi I know well, traditionally he's shown to be in a biplane, yeah, but I I don't know because you also see him in um a Luftwaffe paint plane. Whatever they were called, you also see him in those. I am. I'm pretty sure he was uh, in a biplane. I'll take. I'll take my phone off aeroplane mode. <laughs> Ironically. Ironically. Oh, we were talking about aeroplanes. Uh, I'll just put the Red Baron in. Oh no! I'm just thinking he was in Blackadder, and that was World War One. Manfred Albrecht Freire von Richthofen. Yeah. Known in English as Baron Ron Richthofen. 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 Or the Red Baron was a fighter pilot with the German Air Force during World War One. He is considered the ace of spades. <laughs> no, the ace of aces of the war, being officially credited with 80 air combat victories. So he won 80 dogfights. Amazing. He also died uh, at the sort of at last knockings of the war. Mm. So he, he did. He, he lived by the sword. He died by the sword. Yeah. At the time, he'd been pursuing a very low altitude, a Sopworth Camel piloted by Canadian novice Wilfred Reed Wop May of number 209 Squadron. May had just fired on the Red Baron's cousin, Lieutenant Wolfram von Richthofen. On seeing his cousin being attacked, Richthofen flew to his rescue and fired on May, causing him to pull away. He pursued May across the Somme. The Baron was spotted and briefly attacked by a camel piloted by May's school friend and flight commander, Canadian Captain Arthur Roy Brown. It was almost certainly during this final stage of his pursuit of May that a single uh, .303 bullet hit Richthofen through the chest, severely damaging his heart and lungs. It would have killed him in less than a minute. And then he crashed his uh, aircraft. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, what's that? You're you're flying around Mm. and you see your cousin being shot at. So you fly in to try and protect your cousin and the guy that you're pursuing who is shooting at your cousin is noticed by his school friend mm-hmm. who comes in. It's all very at the school gates, isn't it? It's very all at the school. It's biffy. Yeah. 
Because it wouldn't be called Biffy. Well, you imagine you know they I were mean? all of a, of, a, of a type. Strangely brown. Yeah. And all you, that from Blackadder. You had to have a death wish to be involved in aerial dogfights at that time because oh, you were yeah. flying things made out of balsa wood and... Chewing gum. Well, cloth. <laughs> you know, they were basically glorified kites at that point. Yeah, they were. They were. So, I mean, there you go. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was worth the wait. Yeah, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. And finally, somebody who's not incompetent. I I think he was. No. In certain aspects he of his got, life. He got planes off the ground. Some of them barely. Just because people didn't buy his designs doesn't call doesn't mean he's a failure. No, I'm saying the plane that barely made it over one small hedge that was, was a bit of a Okay, fear. that was a flop. But there was a lot of success. There was some success. A lot of success. The cyclocar? Yeah, we don't know what that is. That was a midlife crisis. I think the planes were a midlife crisis. <laughs> it was a post-life crisis. <laughs> like, oh no. Can you imagine when the first one rolled off the production line? Like, do you like it, Claude? And he's just weeping as one honks the tide. <laughs> this is walking alongside it going top speed. This is a low point. Oh. This is a low point. Oh. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.